Welcome to Season 2 of The Morning Glory Project. I'm your host, Betsy Graziani-Fassbender. And on this podcast, I bring to you guests of a lot of different kinds, survivors and thrivers, innovators and trailblazers, folks that have fallen down and gotten back up, folks that have been knocked down and gotten back up. Basically, I ask every single guest the same question. How did you get through what you got through? And the reason I ask that is because I think that when we share those stories, we gain empathy for those different than ourselves. We gain understanding from those whose circumstances may resemble our own. But we all get to walk away with a little notion of how we might get through whatever we're going through. I hope you enjoyed these stories and feel free to go to themorningglory.project.com to find any past episodes or to listen to one again and feel free to share us out with your friends and give us a reviewer like we sure do appreciate it. Thanks for listening. I'm really happy today to welcome to the Morning Glory Project Edward Doyle Gillespie. Ed was on his way to an academic career teaching literature and history when his plans abruptly changed in the fall of 2001. Like so many people, the events of 9-11, which took place on what was his first day of graduate school, changed the course of Ed's life. Like everyone else, Ed watched it unfold and thought, okay, I'm going to get my master's degree, and then I'm going to earn a black belt, and I'm going to go and protect people from bad guys. Today, Ed is still teaching, but not at a university, and the subjects aren't great books or philosophy. He's an instructor at the Baltimore Police Academy, where he teaches officers about community policing, ethics, and counterterrorism. After 13 years, he's now a detective on the force, but when he started, he worked the streets as a beat cop. Being a black officer came with many assumptions and indeed stereotypes that Ed simply did not fit. Neither did he fit the stereotype of what many would presume a black man in a Baltimore police uniform might be. Neither fish nor fowl, Ed has chosen to learn, to grow, and to bring his own values and experiences to his work, which still fulfills that original mission of protecting people from bad guys. Ed has now published two books of poetry, Masala Tea and Oranges, and on the latter edition of Sancho Panza, and he continues to write outside of his day job at the Police Academy. Ed Doyle Gillespie, thank you so much for being part of the Morning Glory Project today. Welcome. Oh, thank you so much. Thank you. I'm glad to be here. I, I think of you as I've read and watched a number of things about you and, and heard about you from our mutual dear friend. You are neither fish nor fowl. <laughs> <laughs> or or you you just don't seem to fit tidily into any of the boxes that people tend to put others into. Tell me about your life as a police officer and and how you are the same as and different from your colleagues. It, it's funny, neither fish nor fowl. Yeah, it's been fascinating from the very beginning, actually. Um, I had, uh, you know, as we kind of did an inventory of everyone in the academy from where they came and why they were there and uh, when I said, well, you know, before this, I was working at Johns Hopkins and I have my master's degree from there. There were a lot of raised eyebrows and, uh, some people asked whether I was here to write a book as we've had, um, academics actually join the police department for the purpose of writing a, a book and they stayed for a year or two. Mm. And I said, no, I, I want to be a cop. Uh, so there was always the question of, well, 
Are you tough enough to fit in? Can you handle the streets? That sort of thing. You know, you're a middle-class guy for the came from an academic background. So there was always that. There was always kind of the, um, Josh, you don't, you don't talk like a black guy from the street. So how are you mm-hmm. going to get by? And, you know, it's, it's funny because it functioned at all sorts of different levels. I mean, there was the funny, com- the funny com- camaraderie of it, of, you know, hey, let's listen to how he pronounces this word to, um, you know, I've actually encountered um, cops and particularly a few supervisors I had that were actually quite hostile. I mean, really very angry that I was there. How, how so? For why? Um, I, I represented a type of cognitive dissonance for them, for one thing, I think. Uh, I think lots of them felt very threatened. For some officers there, for some supervisors, you know, being a cop um, and doing, you know, cop stuff was their access to personal power. Hmm. And I kind of represented a culture or a type of person or a set of practices that was always antithetical to their personal power. Um, And so, you know, I mean, I've met some that, you know, said I, I never liked school. I didn't like academic people. Like I had one that was very angry at me for reading. Um, we had, uh, I worked in one unit, in which we had time, maybe about 20 minutes or so we'd sit, we'd sit around while the other shift came in and we got organized and went out. And if I had time, downtime, I would read. And, uh, this office, this supervisor, the sergeant, which became furious. I mean, he was just like, don't you bring no more books to work while you be bringing books to work. Uh, he was just really, really angry about it. Isn't it interesting? I, I, I'm a little stymied at, as we're talking because, you know, there's lots of chatter about what people call reverse racism, which kind of really doesn't exist in lots of ways, <laughs> you know, which is racism against white people. But it sounds like in a way it was this not reverse, but kind of a twisted racism as, as if you, a black man and a cop shouldn't be an intellectual, that that's, that was those were opposites somehow or somehow menacing to or threatening to folks who saw it a different way than you. So there was an, almost a type of Stockholm syndrome going on with some of the black officers that I knew that they had very much given themselves over in part to some racial paradigms, some racist paradigms. And they were like, well, we don't do that. We aren't supposed to do that. Why are you, men aren't supposed to read, black men aren't supposed to read. And it's funny because I even had, remember having a conversation with a, a white officer who defined himself as being, as he said, I'm a country boy, I'm a redneck, I'm a good old boy. He's like, why do the black guys give you such a hard time? You'd think they would like the fact that you went to school and you read and you know, you've worked hard in school and your family did well. Cause my, my father was a PhD. And uh, he said, you'd think they would like that. I don't understand. Uh, so, but so what, then, what have you come to understand about that? Well, here's the thing. And this is something that this is a, I guess an answer that, um, straddles the line of a lot of different dynamics going on with the, when we look at policing. Um, we have thousands of officers in this agency. And within the culture of policing, you have so many subcultures. And as much as I have found cops that were very threatened by, very disturbed by uh, my propensity for reading and academia and, you know, as they put it, my somewhat nerdiness. Um, um, I found, I've met quite a few that were rather taken by it and said, you know, ask me, hey, what, what are some good books I can read? Or, you know, could you tutor my kid? Or I wish I'd done better in that. Or, hey, did you ever read this concept? And, you know, I actually had one uh, supervisor who pulled me aside one day and he said, he looked, he kind of looked left and right. 
like we were in the, you know, the Maquis, you know, during the the occupation of France. And he said, <laughs> I hear you like to read. <laughs> I like to read too. <laughs> wow. Like that's a big secret. Exactly. Exactly. And uh, he was very much an alpha male cop and he was a drug cop who did, you know, he did busts and he was, you know, but it was like, he said, I really love reading history. I said, oh, my first degree is in history. And so we talked about it. And so I think a lot of it has been, it's a matter of the company that you keep. It's like where you end up, where you find yourself. Like I work at the academy now and we're, we trade books back and forth a lot and people respect. It's funny. There's a matter of what can I learn from you? Or you're helping blaze a trail that we need to blaze. Um, well, and, and let it not be go unsaid that Baltimore itself, by reputation and, and fact I'm gathering, is not the easiest place in the world to be a cop of any color or any ilk. Absolutely. For that matter, it's a, it's a challenging city with lots of challenges to it. And it sounds as though, you know, the dear bard may have given us <laughs> some guidance, you know, all the world's a stage and all the people merely players. It sounds as though people get their assignment of role and they wear that uniform, literally and figuratively in this case, and they don't want to, they don't, they feel uncomfortable with somebody that doesn't fit the role precisely. Oh, sure. Oh, sure. Absolutely. Um, yeah, I think I've, I think I've seen that I mean, because there's a feeling of, look, can I trust you? I, I know I, I worked with a guy who said, um, he, he said to me kind of after the fact sort of thing, we were talking, we were working in a unit together, kind of an elite unit where we were looking for drugs, guns, gangs. And he said, um, he said, you know, man, I, I hear you talking in the office and I listen to this, hear the music you're listening to and see you saw so sitting there reading and I thought, yeah, he's kind of a smart guy, but I wouldn't want him want him backing me up in a yeah, fight because then we got into a fight and I saw how physical you were and I saw how you could handle it. And he said, uh, I was, I was, I was, I was wrong, man. But I mean, he, you know, often when you're in an existential crisis, you look for kind of brass tacks, baseline answers. How am I going to survive? And I think lots of cops, you know, their thing is when people start coming up with Here's something innovative and new for policing. Here's a concept you might need for policing. The first thought is, will this keep me alive? Am I going to be able to survive and do the job? Well, they have, they have very real and immediate things to consider. So can I trust you? Will you have my back? Can you also use the same physicality that I need to be safe? Those aren't unreasonable questions for Pete's sake. Right. And uh, I've often found that uh, when discussing police reform, discussing the department of police officers and things like that. You know, it's, it's funny now having, having been a teacher and worked in academics and now been a cop, I know people all over the spectrum of, you know, left wing, right wing, you know, left brain, right brain. And so I've talked to people from, you know, my academic world who've said things like, well, maybe our cops shouldn't have guns like the cops in England. And, you know, maybe they should, you know, look at things this way and they should all do yoga every day. And I'm like, yes, okay, some of those things sound good, but they're not really practical or really going to work. And I've got people on the right wing that, you know, say if we all carried M60 machine guns, that, you know, it would be a much safer city. But um, so obviously the truth has to lie somewhere in the, in the middle. But I've had to counsel people, I realize, who come from that. They come from a world in which they haven't been through many existential crises. They, you know, they don't understand the idea of the crime fight because they've been the victim of violent crime. So you're saying in terms of the, the world of academia, the world of the middle and upper middle and upper class world perhaps have not faced 
the direct and immediate dangers that cops and also folks that are in different worlds experience. Absolutely. I mean, I think about people that I've met in West Baltimore that live, you know, they and the officers that patrol there live in this heightened state often because they are just in constant existential crisis. And, you know, the good people that I've known throughout my life, you know, like I did, I would never have known that that is what life was like in say, I grew up in Philadelphia. Uh, I grew up in a upper middle class part of Philadelphia. I went to a private school for 13 years. Uh, same all boys private school for 13 years. Well, no, wait now, before, before we go any further, that had to be a big screech of a, of a dead stop. than the first time you were on the street as a police officer. Absolutely. So tell um, me about that. Tell me about that, that shift from the upper middle class private school kid with academia, academic parents to street cop in Baltimore. <laughs> How do you not get whiplash with that one? <laughs> so uh, the funny, as you were asking me that, the first image that popped into my head, uh, we went on field training. So that's when you're still uh, in training status and you're out there with an experienced officer. And uh, you're starting to learn how to do the job, where how to take reports and how to approach things and you know the myriad of things you have to do. And I just remember being, first of all, in a public housing development which is something, as you know, we, as we called it growing up, the projects that were in those neighborhoods and, right. uh, you know, a place that I would never have into which I would never venture. If we did drive through North Philadelphia where some of those houses were, we, you know, roll up the windows and, you know, we don't, I mean, there was, that was a different world. So we were driving through with, I was driving through with my field training officer and he flashed a light behind one of the buildings and pulled up. And there was a woman standing by a wall, kind of backed up against the wall. And he yelled, Mary, Mary, what are you doing? You know better than that. And I realized she was defecating. Mm. I just kind of sat there with my mouth hanging open. Like I said, is, is she, is she going to, he goes, yeah, she's doing it again. Come on. So we got out of the car and I'm talking to this woman. And of course, my first thought was, well, I have to rationalize what's going on here. I, I have to understand why I'm seeing a person defecating on a wall. So... That just, you know, she was a drug addict. She'd had nine children. It was just a whole different world. So my first thought was, well, I have to organize this. Now, and I think, you know, as much as I did this from my, you know, my middle class, upper class, you know, college educated background, I think lots of cops, lots of people try to do this. They look at a behavior that just makes no sense. And well, I have to organize this so that it makes sense in my world. So for lots of people, it becomes, well, she is just evil. This woman is just wrong. She's wrong. She's made terrible decisions out of malice and she deserves what she gets. And over time, I've come to understand this woman is probably suffering from horrendous mental illness, drug mm -hmm. addiction, health problems. But Poverty. It, oh, yeah. Oh, probably so. Yeah. I mean, um, and so adding depth to and this, and I think this kind of swings me around to the what I do now when I teach. I teach classes on bias. I teach classes on um, – I teach class on bias, on Baltimore history. Uh, I teach even a class on cross-culturalism where I talk about semiotics. Uh, trying to understand that there's some depth, there's a little bit more depth to this awful thing that we're seeing, this dysfunctional thing that we're seeing and doesn't connect with us, than we understand. Do you think it's a, that we reach for the simple label because, I don't know, I, I hate this word because it sounds judgmental, but it's, it's almost a little lazy to 
it to just quickly categorize that way that that I I've often felt as I watch the the civil discord that we're in right now, even the political discord that we're in, that's so shocking and horrible. And, you know, we're all just white knuckling it until, <laughs> until things find some kind of homeostasis again. Um, I, I wonder if it just is that we, we just quickly need to sort things. Like you said, I need to organize this, but that what we're missing is nuance. Of what we're missing is that we, we want the, the, no pun intended, the black and the white of it. Mm-hmm. We, we want yes or we want no. We want bad or good or evil or terrible. Or we want we want just a simple explanation or people want that. But that it seldom is that, it seems Absolutely, like. Absolutely, yeah. I, I had a conversation about um, about the, uh, the kneeling football players, the practice of kneeling football players. And, you know, I had to qualify, first of all, I think I've seen two football games in my life. and <laughs> So you didn't come at this from a sports fan kind of an angle. Exactly, exactly. And so the semiotics of it really didn't hold with me. I don't really understand what it's all supposed to be. And I, I even said, you know, I said, was it, when was it, and I, I didn't mean this to be sarcastic. I was like, was it decided at some point that your feelings about all the veterans and fighting people of the United States forevermore is encapsulated in your, in this one gesture. I mean, was, was there some, was there some decision that, you know, was, you know, was there some semiotic decision that was made at some point that everyone bought into? Um, so when this person kneels, it is clearly going against that decision. And I said, really, why, why do we think that? Why do we even play it then? But I also said, you know, when someone says no, that's not why I'm kneeling. This is why I'm kneeling. Why is there any more debate at that point? I mean, it's like, you know, I, I'm secretly dishonoring the troops. Like they seem pretty open about why they're kneeling. And is it a debate that it's okay to have? And, you know, when people have said, well, that's not a time for politics. Oh, well, then if it's not a time for politics, they ought not play the anthem. I mean, it was like, and once again, I have no, I had no, you know. You have no dog in this fight in terms of the football itself, but in terms of the imagery and the right to do what the, what Colin Kaepernick and others have done was the discussion you wanted to have. Right, right. I was like, well, you know, why is it, do we learn more and grow more and is to become, become stronger if we say, okay, my impulse is to simply say, you are doing this because you are an archetype of evil and I can therefore stand against it. The world is binary and the conversation is done. Or is it you're possibly a relatively virtuous person who is making a statement that I don't really fully understand. So even though I might not agree with you, I mean, I think it's really noteworthy that the guy who gave Colin Kaepernick the idea of kneeling was a former Green Beret um, because Kaepernick had been sitting out. And once again, I have no, it, there's no image of this for me. I don't watch football, but um, I don't even really understand it. But he, he first started by sitting and he chose to kneel that, that that was his way of both being respectful to the ritual, but not, but, but also to protest police violence toward black people. Right. And I said to, I, there was a, a coworker of mine who was irate over it, just irate. And I said, you do realize that he got this idea from a former Green Beret who said, you know, he said, I take umbrage at you sitting. I feel this is meant to honor my comrades. And Kaepernick said, well, I don't dishonor your comrades. This is why I'm doing it. And so he said, well, what if you knelt? Because we some, we kneel when we lose a, a comrade. And he said, oh, okay. And so I, I, I gave him this whole narrative and I said, well, so here's how it comes, we get to this point. And this, 
I could see this guy kind of glaze over. Uh, it was too much information because at the end of the day, he he wanted to hate Colin Kaepernick for not standing. And, um, you know, you, you don't want the world to get too complicated. And one thing I found, you know, when I first got out there on the street, I really was looking for an uncomplicated world. I wanted to get bad guys. And pretty soon I started realizing that I was noting, I was using that moniker for just about anyone that wasn't living in a way that I thought was appropriate. Wait, wait, I want to slow that down a little bit because I think that's really important. Because that moment at 9-11, you said, I'm going to go get strong. I'm going to go protect the world from bad guys. I, that's a virtuous kind of thing, but it seems it, it seems naive in some sure. ways, yes? Absolutely. Um, but so it sounds like you kind of got it, <laughs> that, 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 that your own binary sorting of the world into good guys and bad guys was arbitrary according to you. Sure. Right? <laughs> so we all have to expand that consciousness. What, what was, what do you think is the hardest part for you? How, how do you, what are the, the most difficult things for you to deal with as both a, as both a peace officer and as uh, I'm thinking of you, you know, that you've heard the expression of square peg in a round hole. Well, I, I think there's a whole bunch of round holes and square holes and you're a triangle. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you, know, you don't really fit into either of them. And I'm wondering how, if it's hard to be that triangle and if it's hard, if it's hard to be a cop, it's hard to be a black man in America right now. Maybe always has been, of course, always has been, but that it's also difficult to be this triangle person. I think I think that's the thing. I think uh, you know it's funny. I um, I remember that quote and why I know why the cage bird sings when Maya Angelou says to her mother, my my Angelou's mother says to her, "Don't take it personally. It's not about you personally. They just hate us as a group." And I always remember, I remember reading that. I was maybe like in the eighth grade and thinking, "Well, I'd rather have you hate me as an individual." And so I think it's and, and you know when I read. When I've read, uh, I've re- I've reread Gloria Anseldua, uh, this this bridge called my called my back, and um, there's a essay in which she says, you know, when I identify as a Raza person, my black and Asian sisters want me to identify as a to take on third world, all the third world causes, and when I identify as a lesbian, um, I'm asked by I'm asked by heterosexuals to be this and by bisexual people to be that. It's like whatever identity you have, there's going to be a counterbalancing force pulling. And so being that triangle, I think, you know, you have to learn to kind of glory in it ultimately. Um, hmm. You have to learn to kind of glory in it and say, you know, I, I really, these are my foibles and these are my fortes and this is the package that I'm given instead of struggling against it, you know. Um, so what, 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 Tell me a part that was really challenging. What was the hard part of coming to know that? Because that sounds like the end of the story. That mm-hmm. you know, I always ask people on this: How did you get through what you got through? And it sounds like embracing your own it, your own diversity of being diverse within being diverse, right? And, and welcoming that. But but what was what made the challenge? So what were the what were the rough parts? 
I think when people realize that, you know, to some extent you have to realize and those around you have to realize that when you are that person, you're willing to go without a community to some extent. Um, that, uh, you know, like the guys, I, I knew, I've known some officers that said, you know, you need to come out and drink heavily with us. And I said, I, I don't do that guys. Um, I've had people even say, you know, you need to train your speech so that you don't make other people feel inferior. So what the, so that you don't sound as erudite. Exactly. And uh, I said, you know, I'm, I'm just going to have to go without you then. I'm just going to have to go without you. Uh, Where do you get that, Ed? Where do you get that? Because I think that most of us, even if we we are triangles <laughs> in a square and round peg hold world, I think most of us want to go along to get along or get along to go along. I'm not sure what the expression is. What what in you told you that said that said you know no I I do not need to do that. Where'd you get that? So I've pondered that because I I know sometimes it's it's one of those things that you know, people which they, they will look and see it as a virtue and others it becomes it can be quite annoying to them but i think i think one thing is that i'm an only child i think i because i spent a lot of time reading i spent a lot of time reading stories about heroism i think and there's always the question of the individual uh, standing up. For, I mean, it, it was kind of a very simplistic, kind of very simplistic things that were put forward in. My mom was in, was big into Greek mythology, um, so I think a lot of the source material, I guess you could say, that kind of makes up who I am, caused it. I think also living when I have tried. You know, I think we've all, like you said, we've all gone through that period of oh, well, let me just do what I need to do here. I think I've often looked at the that there's been an issue, some counterbalancing issue that like, you know, it created like, yes, I, what I did, what I had to do to get along here, but now this was an issue that it caused. I think at the end of the day, you weigh it and say, did I was, what was the cost here? Did I, you know, did I give up my morals? Did I give up my individuality? You know, even did I give up my time? Did I spend time doing something that wasn't meaningful to me? You know, I've thought about that a lot, even in my own life, Ed, because I, looking back, this is much history now. I'm, you know, longer in the tooth these days and <laughs> have grown children and all of that. But in my younger dating days, I can remember sort of acquiescing to the expectations of men in terms of how I should look or dress or what I should wear. And and that sounds like such a simple thing. But I think about it now and I think, why was I wearing high heels I didn't like wearing them. They were miserably uncomfortable. I ended up with foot surgery. Why was I doing that? You know, even something as simple as that, you know, adapting what we wear, not, not of course a uniform, which is a different matter altogether, but, but looking back and, and seeing that it cost me health, but mostly what it cost was that I knew I was reshaping myself for somebody else. And that had the, that had secret little costs that played out over time for a long time. Ah, see, yes, see that that's the thing. You you kind of we often like give ourselves this death of a thousand cuts, where we keep we keep saying, you know, where do I acquiesce? Where do I acquiesce? And this is where a lot of police malfeasance comes from, I think. Or mm. an officer. More, what do you mean about that? Oh well, it's uh, you know, if an officer falls in with a group of officers 
or the question is, how will I be accepted by this unit, by that officer, by this officer? And it turns out that this officer is not on the straight and narrow. Well, just cut this corner here. Just cut that corner. There. We all do that. Why don't you just do this? Um, and, you know, I think the average officer, I really, and this is not being Pollyannish, I really think the average officer, and I, I train them, comes in with very virtuous ideas about how they want to be, how they want to police. And we talk about this type of thing that will, you know, young officers will see someone do something and they'll say, is that okay for us to, to do that? Or, oh, sure, kid, don't, you know. Gee, hmm. am I allowed to question that? Am I allowed to go against that? And, um, you know, it's funny, my... Uh, I had a great professor at George Washington University uh, for a, an American history course who was talking about slavery and about the psychological effects and social effects of slavery. And he used, he, if you know, I'm sure you'll remember as I do, as um, some, you know, those of us that are a bit longer in the tooth in the 1970s when Roots came out, um, very, uh, very powerful scene where LeVar Burton's character was made to say his slave name. Right. He kept defying that. Right, right. Until he was nearly, he nearly died, and he finally said Toby, which was his his mm-hmm. assigned to him by his his master. And um, this this professor said, you know, that moment said a lot. That's the subordination of the individual. That's a totalitarian system, you know. Um, and uh, he said, so he says, ask yourself how many times you say Toby, how many times you because of what you wear or what you do, or you know, you decide I'm going to subordinate myself to this overarching dynamic, you know? Hmm. How many times do we all say Toby? Right. Squeezing our feet into shoes that hurt our bodies or having facial surgery to please some, you know, injecting (laughs) things into our face to make ourselves look a certain way. You know, that's on the feminine, but also in your line of work, it could be folks that acquiesce to less than ethical or even violent or dangerous Absolutely. You know, I'd be remiss if I end our conversation without asking you, of course, about the Black Lives Matter movement and the the challenges that police officers have faced. And I'm not going to address, of course, somebody doing violent harm to somebody intentionally. That's a whole other matter. But I'm wondering what it's like to be a good cop right now. You know, it seems like bad cops make good cops jobs really hard. They do. They make them really hard. And uh, I have I will do a quick scan in the mornings to see if what, you know, what videos are up, what body cam footage is up. And I've been just driven to distraction. I mean, my, my, my office mate and I looked at one the other day and she was practically in tears. She's like, what is wrong with people? Like, we will see things that cops will do in other, other jurisdictions or even ours and think, what, what, what was he thinking? Like, what, you know, and it's not about consequentialist ethics. Like, oh my gosh, don't, you know, they're looking at us, don't do the wrong thing. It's, it's a matter of, you know, did you really think as a cop, kind of that, that Nuremberg attitude of, you know, did you really think that this was your job, that doing this makes sense? Um, on the other hand, you know, there are times when I still, you know, I, I have to look at some of these situations, look at things that come up. And say, well, you know, what should this officer have done? And in many cases, there are things that are ugly, things that the public doesn't want to see, and, but they are part of how we have to do the job at times. Mm-hmm. They might involve violence and they might involve... Um, More force than one would be comfortable watching. Right. I mean, I've, I've talked with people from my Johns Hopkins world about force that I've used, and I think the conversation was actually traumatizing for them. They were like, but... Because, I mean, I actually had one woman say to me once... 
she said, well, um, I said, I, I told her I've never shot anyone. I said, I've, I've had more close combat hand, hand to hand, you know, having to, con- to control people and fist fight with them and things like that. And she said, what do you mean? I said, well, we, we fight. We have to fight with people sometimes. And she looked genuinely confused. And she said, well, why? Like, what? what starts the fight? I don't get, it. I mean, she really did not understand. It's just not part of her, of her, um, her purview. It's just not part of her. You know, it's, I wonder how many of us just because of unfamiliarity, we just can't recognize something we haven't experienced ourselves. You know, and it's my bias and it's a whole reason why I do this podcast is that I think that it's by telling these stories that we enlighten each other, that we broaden each other's perspectives. And it seems to me that you, you as this triangle that you are, um, you bring a number of different, completely disparate viewpoints together into one experience. The, the street life, the cop life, the academic life, the, and I understand you're a dad, Yes, yes. So teaching your children to be not Toby. Mm. Right. <laughs> I wonder how that is for you. And it's funny, as you were talking about the uh, the Western cosmetic foot binding you experienced. Right. Uh, uh, <laughs> it's um, so funny that you say that. I've called it exactly that. It is, it's just the first thing that popped into my head. Like. And, you know, men are very rarely asked to deform or mutilate themselves um, to be considered acceptable. And I'm raising a girl and um, it's, it's a challenge. I mean, it really is. I, I remember sitting here, I was sitting writing and um, when the 2016 uh, campaigns were going on and that statement that Trump made that was, you know, audio taped. You the know. Access Hollywood tape. Yeah. And that and then so much else. And I just, it just like, so here's my bias, you know, my male privilege that if you were to ask me, is there sexism? Yes. Is there misogyny? Yes. Okay. But to have, to suddenly feel this avalanche of, oh my gosh, there's a whole segment of society that just hates my daughter, mm. just wants to mutilate and destroy and crush my daughter. And how can I protect her? And how can I fortify her against this? Um, feeling like I, and this is something I've, I've written about, feeling like I have to like weaponize my daughter to go into the world. Um, and, and not from- protect her. Right, right. And, and not from the, you know, the marginalized people that I've dealt with, you know, the criminals. And okay, I understand they're out there that I've, I've dealt with, but- that there are people in positions of power, people in positions of respectability. Her future bosses or teachers or scout leaders or right. Right. neighbors. My. It's, it was, they're just feeling the weight of it. And I'm, I'm writing a, a science fiction story as a gift for her. And it's, it's, I was writing it kind of half-heartedly because I was thinking, you know, first I said, well, you know, I, I want her to have a story with strong female role models, strong female archetypes. I thought, well, you know, she'll have the hunger games. There'll be so much stuff that's out. She's not want to read dad's story. And then I just, I literally said out loud, sitting in my living room with the computer on my lap, I just heard myself say, grab her by the what? Right. And my mouth just fell open. And I thought, oh my gosh, how have I missed this? Well, you know, I confessedly, I have to tell you, I, I too, so I'm a Caucasian female. 
in currently a middle class, though I grew up in kind of a upper lower <laughs> class mm -hmm. family. And I've never thought that we were in a post-racial society by any means. I certainly knew that we weren't in a post-misogynistic society by any means. But I have to say that what's been revealed by the glaring neon ugly light that we have in our world right now is at a, sh a much more shocking level than I thought. I thought we were further along. I didn't think it was, I didn't think the isms were gone, right. but I really did think we were further along than we are. And that alone tells you that I have a privilege in looking at that because I say, you know, when I've said that to African-American friends of mine, they say, well, we didn't think it was any further along. Right. <laughs> you know, it's like, oh, oh, oh yeah. Now I'm, I'm getting it. But, and my husband didn't realize the degree of, of sexism until the me too world. And I started itemizing him for him, the many, 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 many incidents that I've faced that, that are me too ish or me, or me too directly. Right. So we, we all get educated. So Ed, just in closing, I, I, I want to talk to you for about six hours about this, but, <laughs> but I'm wondering what gets you through each day? What keeps you going? You know, part of it is I have, I have really made it a point to be in a place that, I mean, I wanted to be in police work and the mission has only expanded for me now. I mean, I went from that binary sense of doing good versus evil to doing good for the institution, doing good in the world. Um, so first of all, it's a, it's a sense of purpose, a sense of meaning and purpose. Uh, one of my biggest fears was to get to my you know later years and say, you know what, I don't care about what I did. I care about what I do. So that's one thing I think... Um, I think having a family, of course, mm -hmm. I mean, being connected with other people and I'm an introvert. I, I don't, I'm not, I don't connect well with people, <laughs> um, but uh, definitely those things give me meaning. My writing continues to, uh, but I have to have to say a big thing is being able to say, this is important work. That's that mutual friend of ours said, you know, this is heart work that you're doing. And um, that's important to me. Mm. Well, thank you for your service. Oh, thank and you. Thank you also for this beautiful time. I have a feeling, we, I, I have a hope that we'll have future conversations, Ed, and that perhaps when we can re meet in the molecular world again, perhaps we'll be able to, to meet in that way as well. Thank you so much for your time today. Certainly. Thank you. As I reflect on my conversation with Edward Doyle Gillespie, I come away with one really big feeling, and that's the feeling of humility. With all of the civil rights activity and civil unrest that we're witnessing now with the Black Lives Matter movement, while I, as a Caucasian woman, might have great empathy for that, great passion for the ideals of justice and fairness. I have to be humble and say, all I can do is imagine what it might be like not to wear the skin that I wear. And I see Ed as somebody who crosses all kinds of boundaries in interesting ways. He's, he's 
a paradox or a series of ironies. And he's often misjudged by various groups for various wrong reasons. He's clearly an individual with his own individual path. So I want to be careful not to presume that I understand, but to try to. That's the precipice that we must live on, right? When we're trying to understand people whose circumstances are wildly different from our own. I can't understand, and I have to humbly admit that. It's presumptuous of me to think that I do. And I want to strive to try to. That's really the whole reason that I do this podcast, is to try to gain understanding through the stories of others, to be open-hearted and trying, trying to be humble, not thinking that I know what it's like. I really only have my best guess. So I want to listen to lots of different kinds of people from lots of different kinds of realities and backgrounds and experiences and qualities and choices, lifestyles. I want to hear from them all and try to understand. That's my extra bloom for today. It's empathy. It's humility. It's open-heartedness. Something that I strive toward and I have to fight against my assumptions, my pride, my bigotries. It's a slog, (laughs) but it's worth making. Thanks so much for listening today to the Morning Glory Project. As always, it's an honor to have even a moment of your time when there are so many ways that you can be spending it. Thanks for spending it here. I hope that you are finding a way in your world to grow and to bloom.